Welcome to Stuff Mom Never Told You from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Kristen. And I'm Caroline. And today we're talking about colorism, which might sound like a synonym for racism, but indeed it is not. No, I, th- I think it's an aspect of racism for sure. It's under the racism umbrella, so to speak. Um, but colorism has more to do, uh, and I'm not even speaking euphemistically when I say it has more to do with shades, honestly, uh, skin tones, uh, if one person is darker than another in the same culture. Yeah, and uh, listeners might be wondering, like, why are two pasty skin? Sorry, Carolyn, I hope you don't take that, uh, no, it's true. In the wrong way. It's the hard truth. We, we call, we call pasty skin, pasty skin. <laughs> Here's stuff I've never told you. Um, so why, why would we be talking about this issue? Well, first of all, because pasty skinned white folks like ourselves absolutely perpetuate this kind of violence. And I think it's also helpful for understanding all of the, the very layers of racism and its complications and also how privilege works. The ways that we all move through the world often in in different ways, depending on all of our different attributes, including the very shade of our skin. Yeah. So whereas racism is discrimination, often systemic, institutionalized discrimination against people based on their ethnicity, colorism is more the unconscious and institutionalized prejudice against people based on the color of their skin. And like I was saying, it exists even within ethnic groups. And it's really tied into the internalization of a lot of those racist factors in culture. Yeah, so it exists around the world, um, but particularly in sites of past European colonization. So you have that internalization of a white supremacist hierarchy, but it also in, exists in places where you, colonization did not exist. So you have places like the Far East where whiteness also was valued. But um, I think it's <laughs> uh, it's it's foolish to assume that anywhere you go in the world, a desire for lighter skin is a desire for the whiteness that you and I embody, Caroline. Right. Because, I mean, we talked about this in our last episode on tanning that people in certain Asian countries don't necessarily want to have lighter skin because they want to be white or because their country once had white people in it or over it, but more because of that issue that we talked about of the class division of people in lower working classes uh, participating in manual labor outside. They're in the sun, so their skin is naturally darker versus people of higher classes who did not have to work outside. Yeah. So if you go to Southeast Asia, for instance, a whiter complexion was seen as more noble and aristocratic. But I almost wonder, Caroline, as a side note here, if whiter and lighter should not be used as synonymously as they often are, because I feel like once we start saying whiter, it does put in our heads like the idea of like, oh, they want to look like you and me. But it's Mm -hmm. more the lightness factor. For instance, if uh, we talk about people in India, there is an issue with skin bleaching that goes on there also in many other places around the world. But um, there was an article about skin bleaching in India, which emphasized how the desire isn't 
to look European, but rather for a hue that is listed on matchmaking websites over there as wheatish, as in like wheat, the grain, wheatish. And I just mentioned that to help contextualize a little bit the different forms that colorism can take. And I think it's interesting to note, too, that, you know, colorism isn't really discussed as loudly and as broadly on the national or global Internet stage, if you will, um, as racism is, because a lot of people perceive this to be an in-group issue, sort of almost like dirty laundry. We don't want to talk about how, you know, here we are battling racism toward our group, and yet we're squabbling or just feeling less than because of the shade of our skin color. And this was something, too, that came up in a BuzzFeed conversation a little while back with a roundtable of its Latino writers. And one of them, uh, Javier Moreno, said, I've always felt that colorism and race is the biggest elephant in the room in the Latino community. Both are extremely prevalent, yet nobody ever talks about it. And I think, too, Caroline, that this is one of those issues that people also quickly dismiss as political correctness in quotes. It's like, oh, here we go. Here's another thing we got to worry about. And it's like, yeah, no, let's pay attention to these things and be decent humans. Mm -hmm. For instance, when we started reading about colorism, the first thing that came to my mind was uh, from February 2015, when the quote unquote hot convict Jeremy Meeks's mugshot went viral He was this lighter-skinned African-American man with blue eyes. And, yes, he's very attractive. He does look like a model. And women went berserko online over him. At one point, Glamour Magazine nicknamed him Felon Bay. Mm. (laughs) And I just... And this, this right here is colorism. Because, as we will talk about more, and, and studies and statistics clearly show, skin color absolutely impacts how you are treated in the legal system and also how you are simply perceived when you're walking down the street, like mm-hmm. whether you are perceived as more trustworthy, more bay-worthy, yeah. if you will. I mean, like you said, this isn't an issue of political correctness. We're not just bleeding heart liberals who are looking for something to be offended about, which is what I feel like we get accused of sometimes Um, because, for instance, look at Viola Davis. Uh, There's a quote from her that we found where she said, the paper bag test is still very much alive and kicking. Yeah. So we're not just making this stuff up, people. Um, I think one of the most famous and infamous at the same time academic examples demonstrating how colorism works is uh, the 1947 doll experiment. And it was specifically designed to demonstrate the impact of segregation on African-American kids. And if I'm remembering it correctly, the study setup was essentially bringing young African-American kids into a room and presenting them with dolls, um, a white doll, and then a black doll, which the researchers had to make because a black doll did not exist, on the mainstream market at the time. And they asked the kids about their impressions of the dolls, the characteristics they would associate with it, which one they would rather play with. And overwhelmingly, the black children preferred the white doll and also attributed more positive traits to it. 
If we fast forward then to 2010, the study was replicated with both white and children of color and found similar results of white bias, although the bias among the black children had diminished somewhat, but was still present. Um, but the white kids absolutely exhibited it across the board. And Kristen, I believe it was also in that 2010 study that either in addition to dolls or in place of actual physical baby dolls, they showed the kids um, a spectrum of five paper dolls, five children, little cartoons, ranging from very pale to very dark with shades in between. And they were asking children questions like, who's the smartest? Who's the best behaved? Uh, who's the kindest? Who's the most fun? Things like that. And they did find that white children were quicker to assign those more positive characteristics to the white or the lighter shades. Um, and the black children were more open to, yes, ascribing positive traits to the black dolls, but also being open to not everybody is positive or negative based on their color. Well, and speaking of kids, uh, there was a piece in the New York Times not too long ago, which reported on a study from Villanova University, which found that darker skinned black girls in the classroom were three times likelier to be suspended than their lighter skinned female classmates. Yeah, it was a horrifying article. Uh, incredibly eye-opening um, to read about, first of all, young kids being caught up in the legal system for basically disciplinary issues rather than just maybe going to the principal. But the fact that it was so clearly and statistically divided along color lines, and I'm not just talking race and white versus black or whatever, but I mean, even to the point of between black children, the girls who had darker skin going to the office more often. And it follows as we grow up. So there was a study from 2006 out of the University of Georgia, which found lighter skinned African-Americans were perceived as more employable than darker skinned African-Americans, even if they had more education and more work experience. Yeah, and that translates, uh, as you might imagine, to the legal system. And this is uh, from an interview with Shankar Vedantam, our favorite NPR correspondent. Host of the Hidden Brain podcast. What we, up, Shankar? We love him. He he doesn't know who we are, but we're fans. But we, yeah, Kristen and I discovered before this podcast that we both get so excited when Shankar's on NPR. So if anyone knows Shankar Vedantam, please drop him a line on our behalf. Yeah, we say hi. Now back to the podcast. But Shankar was telling the New York Times that darker skinned African-American defendants, and now these are grownups, are twice as likely to receive the death penalty as lighter skinned defendants for equivalent crimes. And if that doesn't speak to just inherent biases that people carry around, I don't know what does. Well, and in the example that Vedantam was giving to the New York Times, there was much less evidence that was used to convict the darker skin defendant as well. So it says if the color of our skin also raises or lowers the burden of proof. Yeah. And if we look at the flip side of this, you know, let's get let's talk about something fun like money. Right. Oh, that's, that's so great. Well, Shankar would say, slow your roll, because other research has found that lighter skin Latinos, for instance, earn five thousand dollars more annually than darker skin Latinos in the U.S., and we can also see this, too, 
in politics. Yeah, so political science research has found that while racism did cost Obama some votes in 2008, uh, colorism cast him as a lighter-skinned African-American man more favorably than had he been darker-skinned. And there were some attack ads that the study highlighted that intentionally um, either juxtaposed him next to... um, another African-American with darker skin or shaded his skin even darker to evoke those kinds of negative reactions. Well, don't you remember that that's the same thing that happened with the O.J. Simpson magazine cover during the trial that they was at Time or Newsweek purposely purposely darkened his skin. And it was a huge deal. I remember that. I remember being in fifth or sixth grade and hearing like all of the rigmarole that came because of that, because they had intentionally made him look what a little more dangerous, a little blacker, like a little more scary to white mainstream America. Well, and I wonder, too, about how this plays in with perceptions and the awful, awful racist things that People have said about Michelle Obama as, you know, her skin is darker than Barack's. And I I, I don't know. I just wonder if she were a lighter skinned Flotus, would she receive the same kind of angry black woman racist stereotyping that she has? Because according to colorism research, the answer would be no. I mean, of course, it would still be there, but maybe not as intense. So the question then is, why does this exists. I mean, it's something that's cross-cultural, it's intra-ethnic, and it's a dynamic that isn't just easily explained as, oh, well, everyone wants to be us, white people. So clearly this bias, to put it lightly, exists. But the question is why? And (laughs) the answer is something that we do not have 10 hours to go into in granular detail um, because it is something that's cross-cultural, that's intra-ethnic, that doesn't have a simple answer. And also something that has been historically perpetuated for centuries. And two, it's something that's only recently receiving dedicated scholarship. And that was one reason um, why Veta Sanders Thompson contributed an essay to one of those newer books about colorism called Shades of Difference. Yeah, she wrote that every marginalized ethnic group has issues with physical identification, which includes the color of their skin. Physical features such as color and texture of hair, contours of the face and nose, body shape, all of these things relate to colorism. Skin color, she writes, is almost never considered without some attention to these other physical features. So if we look at colorism specifically in the United States... Of course, we have to talk about slavery. I mean, it's obvious. Uh, Slave owners would divide enslaved people by skin tone with lighter skinned people likelier to work in the houses and darker skinned slaves sent out to the fields. Um, And it was also that division was also intentional to try to turn groups of slaves against each other by essentially establishing that hierarchy according to skin tone. Yeah, and of course you have the issue of white slave owners raping enslaved women. And the products of these unions were children with lighter skin. 
And by virtue of their lighter skin or by virtue of being uh, essentially children of the slave owner, uh, they might receive more favorable treatment, maybe even learning to read and write and potentially eventually for some of them being freed. Um, and during Reconstruction, historians write that we immediately see lighter skinned African-Americans immediately benefiting from their skin tone and that some of the first black communities, associations, schools, churches were exclusively made up of lighter skinned African-Americans. And it's this system of colorism that led to measures like the paper bag test, which is what Viola Davis was referencing earlier. Yeah, so the paper bag test is essentially if you take, you know, like a grocery bag and hold it against your skin, you had to be lighter than the bag in order to gain, you know, entrance or admission or membership into whatever it was you were trying to get into. And this also gets into a whole other conversation, too, that we're not going to address in this podcast of passing. Where it's like mm-hmm. if you could pass that test, you could literally possibly pass as white. Um, there were also ruler tests and comb tests that have been documented um, that sometimes took place at those exclusively lighter skinned um, organizations or even at churches where if a comb, say, is hanging at the door, that means that you have to be able to cleanly run the comb through your hair, thus suggesting that it is straight enough for you to gain entrance. And all of this really exemplifies to how colorism and class are inextricably linked. And, of course, this brings in issues, too, of European colonization. Um, you have a similar color caste system developing, for instance, uh, with Spanish colonists in Latin America, privileging lighter-skinned people with more European-looking facial features. And even today, you still see those skin and class-linked divisions existing among Mexicans and Mexican-Americans. And we see a similar effect that academics refer to as internal colonialism at different sites of European colonization around the world. So this is not something exclusive to the Western Hemisphere by any means. Um, In fact, another point made in an essay in Shades of Difference, Why Skin Color Matters, is how skin lightening in the Philippines, for instance, is rooted in multiple layers of colonialism. So you have, yes, Spanish and American colonialism, but also the rise of Chinese and Spanish mestizo middle classes. And then you just, by virtue of geography, you have that proximity to countries like China, Japan, and Korea, and all of the media coming from there, where also that lighter skin is prized. So, I mean, that's why I say, like, we don't have 10 hours to completely unravel this topic because it is so multifaceted. Yeah. So let's take a look at some other examples of how colorism acts as a discriminatory force within ethnic groups. I mean, we've already talked about the socioeconomic stratification in the African-American community. I mean, post-slavery, you could link the distribution of wealth among African-Americans directly to divisions in skin color. But then there's also this issue of authenticity that research on colorism has unearthed as well, because while lighter skin certainly affords social and economic privilege, it simultaneously marginalizes one's ethnic, quote unquote, 
authenticity. So if we look, for instance, at the black power movement within that group, lighter skin was seen as less authentically black. And Margaret Hunter, writing in an essay from Mills College, says that for some people of color, authenticity is the vehicle through which darker skinned people take back their power from lighter skinned people. She talks to one woman in particular who's darker skinned and expressed jealousy over a lighter skinned uh, friend or peer and said, well, you know, I basically I act petty. I don't include her. I ignore her. Um, I just make it clear that I don't want anything to do with her. And in all of her current and past research on uh, colorism and women of different skin tones and, and shades, she had found in a previous study that nearly all of the dark skinned black women she talked to expressed having wanted to be lighter at some point in their lives. But none of the lighter skinned women expressed a desire to be darker, which directly reflects the degree of privilege, even if you are considered less authentic, that comes along with being lighter skinned. Well, and that taking back of the power um, certainly isn't exclusive to, say, African-American women. Um, that was something that over in that BuzzFeed conversation, um, Norberto Briseño, who is of Mexican-American and Chicano ethnicity talked about. Um, Briseño said, I'll be the first to admit that I had a very ignorant view of white people growing up. White people were white. They can't be Latino. They don't know what I've been through and they don't look like me. So we're different. But now, Caroline, why don't we add another layer to all of this? Let's toss in gender and see what happens in this colorism conversation. Spoiler alert, it gets more complicated. And we'll talk about that when we come right back from a quick break. Caroline, let's face it, trips to the post office are never convenient. So why not get postage right from your desk with stamps.com? Here's how it works. Using your own computer and printer, you can buy and print official U.S. postage for any letter or package. Then you just hand the mail to your mail carrier or drop it in your mailbox. It's that easy. No wonder over 600,000 small businesses are already using Stamps.com. And right now, when you sign up for Stamps.com and use our special promo code STUFF, you get a special offer of a four-week trial plus a $110 bonus offer that includes postage and a digital scale. So don't wait. Get started with Stamps.com today. Head on over to Stamps.com before you do anything else. Click on the microphone at the top of the homepage and type in STUFF. That's stamps.com. Enter stuff. And now back to the show. So as Maxine Leeds Craig writes about in another essay in the book, Shades of Difference, gender certainly does add another element to the colorism question, because historically, she says, while white systems of representation have disparaged black women and portrayed them negatively, you've got this weird middle ground then of portraying lighter skinned black women as exotic. And this marks them as beautiful and desirable, but yet still not the same as white women. Well, and also more sexually available than yeah. white women, too, because of the historic hypersexualization of women of color in the United States. And 
we go into the issue of exoticism, particularly as it pertains to black women in another podcast episode from a while back um, called Exotic Beauty, if you want to go back and listen to that. But one thing that Craig talks about in recounting this history of black beauty pageants in the United States is how before black became synonymous with people of African descent, it was mostly used to describe darker complexions. And before the 1960s in the civil rights movement, most black beauty contests exclusively crowned lighter skin contestants. Again, there's that internalization process that absolutely happens. Although Craig does note one exception. Yeah, from 1961 to 1968, we had the Miss Bronze Beauty Competition, uh, which, unlike most of the black beauty contests at the time that sought these unattainable beauty standards, uh, Miss Bronze actually crowned darker-skinned women, and really women of various skin tones in general. Yeah, so Miss Bronze producer Belva Davis told Craig, quote, we use the pageant to make political statements about segregation being left out and about complexion and all of that. So this was a really big deal for, you know, the darker skinned beauty to be recognized within that community as something to be proud of rather than something to distance yourself from. Um, but speaking of that, you know, on the one one side of the spectrum, on the lighter skin side of the spectrum, we have this exoticism going on. But then on the other side, we have the desexualization of darker skinned women. Um, and this is something that Margaret L. Hunter explores in a 2002 paper called If You're Light, You're All Right. Light skin color is social capital for women of color. And in it, she explores how lighter skin equals more beautiful, equals more social capital. The flip side of that is for darker skinned women you have a triple jeopardy, as it's termed, of gender, race, and skin color on top of that. Yeah, and if you're a, an NPR listener, you're probably familiar with Michelle Norris's The Race Card Project, which is a fascinating, very brief look at people's experiences with race. And I say very brief because it's literally, what is it, six words? Yeah, you have to describe race and what race means to you, and I think it's like five or six words or less. Yeah, and so... There, there were a lot of submissions talking about, for instance, getting called pretty for a dark skinned girl and all of the weird exceptionalism that comes along with people just assuming and internalizing the ideas of darker skin as being something weird and different and not potentially beautiful. Yeah. And also being something that that's the first thing that people are going to see about you. And that's going to be the, basis of how they judge you um, and a throwback to a recent stuff I never told you episode the Anita Hill effect this also came up during her testimony um, some detractors of Anita Hill said that she was just jealous because now Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas preferred lighter skinned women Oh, yeah. so uh. as, as I was reading about all of this, Caroline, I was like, oh, <gasps> Anita Hill, it's all back. 
And we talked about the economic penalties that colorism exacts uh, earlier in the podcast when we mentioned, you know, that statistic that darker skinned Latinos earn less money than lighter skinned Latinos. Well, the same is absolutely true for darker skinned black women. And keep in mind that triple jeopardy. So you're going to get a gender wage gap. You're going to get a further complication because uh, she is a woman of color and probably another ding in her paycheck because she is a darker skinned woman of color. Yeah. And darker skinned black women tend to be perceived in the workplace as less competent, but they're also less likely to get married. Uh, researchers found that lighter skinned black women are more likely to marry someone of higher social status, higher education and higher income compared to their darker skinned peers. But there was one uh, note in that 2006 UGA study looking at um, income and skin tone that jumped out to me, which was when they when they looked exclusively at women of color, they found that medium skin toned women are often viewed most favorably compared to lighter skinned and darker skinned women because they embody both that authenticity in quotes factor that we talked about. But they don't stray too far away from our idea of what a respectable middle class person should look like. So it's like they're embodying they're embodying both of our not ideals, everyone's anxieties, yeah, about race and color, our our rigid comfort zones established via racism. Oh, I want my comfort zone to be squishy, not rigid. I know. Well, you know, what's not helping Hmm. Hollywood. Also Bollywood. <laughs> yeah, that's true. I mean, Exhibit A would probably be the huge dust up over Zoe Saldana being cast as Nina Simone in the biopic that it just came out, right? Or it's coming out? I think it's about to come out. Yeah. And I mean, if you've seen, if you know anything about Nina Simone or have watched her documentary or have listened to our podcast all about Nina Simone, good, good, good call. Good plug. The High Priestess of Soul episode title. And issues of her dark skin tone as well as her facial features were a huge deal for her. These aren't just uh, feelings and emotions and insecurities that people are projecting onto Nina Simone. These are actual things that she herself struggled with. And so the fact that a lighter skinned, very slender, tall, uh, Latina black woman was cast to play her caused a lot of people, including people in Nina Simone's family, uh, to kind of throw their hands up. Yeah, I mean, and <laughs> another example of this came uh, from Straight Outta Compton uh, in a casting call that was publicized, uh, which was looking specifically for female extras, but they broke it down by hotness categories uh, from A through D, with A being the hottest of the hot. And that category was open to women of all ethnicities, preferably with straight hair. But then if you look at C and D, which were considered the least attractive, the casting call explicitly asked for darker skinned women. Also, side note, the B example for this casting call was Beyonce. And I was like, nobody calls baby. (laughs) It's Beyonce. She's in her own category. Um, And some people in the industry 
jump to, I mean, you can't even like really defend that kind of colorism in action. I mean, like even for C&D, they were not only requesting darker skinned women, but also women uh, with more natural hair textures um, and, and also weaves. And I mean, isn't all this code for class? Absolutely. I yeah. mean, that's the thing earlier, like colorism and class are inextricably linked. And and some people in the industry were like, oh, well, you know, this is just how casting calls work. But at the same time, it does exemplify all of these issues. And y'all, straight out of Compton <laughs> has a lot of issues. It's very entertaining, but it's got a lot of issues. Um, another example from 2014, which uh, is, I, I don't know how it was published. Um, this was Alessandra Stanley's Beyond Tone Deaf New York Times profile of Shonda Rhimes. Um, which was essentially just like a send up of the angry black woman stereotype. A. I don't think I read this. Oh, God, don't. It's okay. horrible. I mean, like, I, I honestly, I don't know how it passed through that many editorial like checks to end up published in it, though. It managed to both acknowledge and uphold colorism in one sentence describing Viola Davis. So um, Stanley writes. Ignoring the narrow beauty standards some African-American women are held to. There we have acknowledgement of colorism. Ms. Rhymes chose a performer. She's talking about Viola Davis, by the way, who is older, darker skinned and less classically beautiful than Kerry Washington or for that matter, Halle Berry. And it was like, what? Okay. And I forget what speech it was, but Viola Davis clapped back to it saying, you know, like, Okay, if this is what less classically beautiful looks like, then... Yikes, that is so awkward. Well, I mean, it's racist. Yeah. (laughs) Well, yeah, that's probably why it's (laughs) awkward. But I just, it's it's making my skin crawl because you're exactly right. I don't know how someone didn't read that. But, I mean, this is, I guess, a little advertisement for the importance of diversity in your, on your team, whether it's your newsroom or your app developer program. I sound like such an old your app developer program. <laughs> Those apps and the kids these days. I'll, I love to get some hot wings for my apps. Um, but if we hop over to Bollywood, whereas white American film stars have taken, say, like vocal stances against photoshopping. Speaking of Carrie Washington, she recently came out and very tactfully called out her uh cover image on ad week where she does look kind of unrecognizable yeah i don't know like yes her skin is definitely lighter on the magazine cover than it is in real life but i don't know what they did to her face yeah her face is completely restructured and she was just like it's it's uncomfortable to see that like something that looks so different from what i see in the mirror um And you mentioned the skin lightening. And this is also something that's happened in uh, cosmetics campaigns Mm -hmm. here with, you know, Beyonce's skin being Mm -hmm. lightened. Other uh, actors and celebrities of color having their skin lightened. But this is also a huge force in Bollywood to the point that some stars like Nandita Das are publicly calling out digital skin lightening. Um, And apparently... It's super common as well for people like professional cricket players and Bollywood stars to shill for skin lighteners. And Miss Emma Watson recently got herself in some hot water because of a long ago campaign now that she did uh, that was 
I think it ran in India um, for it might have been L'Oreal. No, it was an Estee Lauder mm. skin lightening product. Yeah, I mean, we're all being duped by cosmetics companies, right? Because, yeah. you know, I'll be in Sephora, for instance, and, you know, I have, I break out sometimes, as you all have heard me talk about. Uh, I break out sometimes, and, like, sometimes that leaves me with acne scars or a little bit of uneven skin texture. And so I might go into Sephora looking for a skin evening cream, but... All of that crap is sold under different names to different cultures. So, like, what might be promised to me as, like, a middle-class white lady in America as just, like, this will even your skin tone. Oh, it'll make you radiant, Carolyn. It'll make radiance and brilliance. They all promise. In America, they tend to promise, like, radiance and youth because that's what this market demands. But somewhere like India, for instance, it might promise lightening properties. It's all the same gunk in a jar, right? Yeah, just with like very specific strategic wording on it. Right. What might be advertised as radiance, brilliance, or shine in one Sephora might be just a straight up lightener in say another Sephora. Yep. Um, but quickly too, if we look at images on screen, um, the colorism and the, uh, the use of lighter skinned actors is something that has definitely been called out in Spanish language television and telenovelas in particular. Um, the lead characters tend to be very light skinned. Um, they also tend to often be blonde. Whereas if you have characters like maids, there you'll find darker skin. So again, class hierarchy built into all of this. But famous people have been calling out this color hierarchy for years now. Back in 2004, Christina Milian called out the narrow Latina beauty standard that was limited to basically light-skinned J-Lo's and Salma Hayek's uh, in a Latina magazine cover story. And then in 2013, you have actress Kiki Palmer say on an L.A. panel, quote, when I was five years old, I used to pray to have light skin because I would always hear how pretty that little light skinned girl was. And there was a similar theme that arose in a, a 2014 Essence speech by Lupita Nyong'o in which she said, I got teased and taunted about my night shaded skin. And my one prayer to God, the miracle worker, was that I would wake up lighter skinned. And then Alec Weck came on the international scene, a celebrated model. She was darkest night. She was on all of the runways and in every magazine and everyone was talking about how beautiful she was. And I love this part where she says, even Oprah called her beautiful and that made it a fact. So while it's good that we're having these kinds of conversations and you do have celebrities of color who are using their platforms to call attention to it, we're still up against this massive cosmetics industry that is happy to profit off of colorism. Yeah, back in 1973, Unilever launched Fair and Lovely in India. And despite Nandita Das's efforts, in 2013, uh, Indians spent more money on skin lighteners than on Coke. Uh, and they even launched a product for men that is called Fair and Handsome. Yeah, so, I mean, it's uh, what we've seen, especially with Dove, 
where we have all of the doves, the dove women products, but now we have dove for men. And mm-hmm. I know that because my fiance uses dove for men and it always makes me chuckle because I'm like, ha, you're getting sold the same stuff I am. Yep. And it does smell delicious. Um, but people might be surprised to learn that according to the World Health Organization, the highest per capita skin bleaching happens in Nigeria. Um, 77% of women in Nigeria use skin lighteners regularly. And a story in the BBC reported how dermatologists in Africa have reported an uptick in skin bleaching and skin damage related to it. Because a lot of times the chemicals in skin lighteners are... Not a very good yeah. for you. Yeah, there's one condition that a lot of women, uh, I believe this was in the article talking about Nigerian women, a lot of women have experienced where the product will actually cause their skin to turn a purple shade because it's not it's not healthy for you. And a lot of these products aren't, it's not like a lot of women are buying, you know, the $200 jar of magical cream from the Sephora website. A lot of women are buying the more black market stuff from markets in their towns. And I mean, there is a lot of question as to what's actually in them. Well, and it is true, too, that if your your cream costs $200, it has to work. <laughs> it will do anything. Uh, yeah. Speaking of people getting duped. <laughs> um, but in the U.S., though, there were enough reports of mercury poisoning related to skin lightener use among uh, certain groups of Mexican-American women that now the FDA, CDC, and the EPA have all issued warnings against using those products. So we've established all of these these unhealthy patterns, you know, unhealthy in many different kinds of ways. Um, but one thing, especially as two white ladies with lots of privileges, um, should also acknowledge and emphasize is that colorism should not be confused with or conflated with or communicated as just the benevolent marginalization of darker skinned women basically saying you have it so bad you poor thing you must hate yourself Mm. i'm sure you do yeah this is something that erica williams simon wrote about in ebony magazine where she was saying you would be entirely incorrect to assume that every dark-skinned woman of whatever race that you see had to struggle through the experience that Lupita Nyong'o described of almost as a rite of passage to get to thinking that you're awesome. She pointed out, by the way, guys, I have always thought I was fly. I've always enjoyed my skin and my looks and my inner self, and I didn't ever have to go through that period of self-loathing that so many people assume happens when you have darker skin. Probably as a product of our own bias against darker skin. Um, But she also notes how, listen, the solution to colorism isn't just considering these women sexually desirable. Sexiness is not the ultimate goal here. And just saying, you know what, you're pretty, especially as she was kind of talking to to guys, saying like, it's the whole pretty for a dark skinned girl thing mm-hmm. where it's like that is really not helping anything at all. And she emphasizes, we've talked about, too, how colorism is a cross cultural issue and not limited to the African-American community. It's around the world. And I guess the upside beyond just reemphasizing that not everyone feels this way uh 
is to talk about things like the Dark is Beautiful campaign that was launched in India a couple years ago to combat the fair and lovely fueled colorism. Uh, and Nandita Das, who we've mentioned now a couple of times, the Bollywood actress, does publicly support it. And she's calling on other actors, actresses and performers to join with her and stop shilling for these lightning cream companies. And another riff on Fair and Lovely that Fatima Lodi launched in Pakistan as a campaign she calls Dark is Divine. And it's actually Pakistan's first anti-colorism campaign uh, that she kicked off in 2013. And then most recently, in 2015, Washington University at St. Louis held what organizers think is the very first international colorism conference in the U.S. It's finally starting to get um, more scholarship. I mean, there's there's a decent amount of uh, academic literature out there about it, but clearly it's such a big issue that it needs more attention. I mean, also considering all of those socioeconomic repercussions. Yeah, but the ebony writer Erica Williams-Simons does have a really good recommendation for the meantime. So she says, constantly and quietly check yourself. Ask why in your mind a white woman with tattoos is edgy. A light woman with pink hair is creative, but a darker woman with either is ghetto. Evaluate why you lighten your selfies. Notice when you obsessively ooh and ah only over lighter-skinned children or don't look a darker-skinned man in the eye when speaking to him. Stop ascribing certain behaviors to certain complexions. And when in the position to create opportunities for others, consider if your commitment to diversity is at all visible to the naked eye. Bam. I know. I mean, that's the perfect note to now ask our listeners whether they've experienced this, what they think about it. Um, I'm also hoping to hear from people outside the United States, too, because a lot of the info that we have access to and have talked about is U.S. specific. So send us your thoughts, as always. MomStuff at HowStuffWorks.com is our email address. You can also tweet us at MomStuffPodcast or message us on Facebook. And we've got a couple of messages to share with you right now. So I have a letter here from Kate in response to our Anita Hill effect episode. I remember I was in seventh grade when the hearing occurred and remember the snickering and disbelief of Hill that took place in our class when we covered it in current events and social studies class, despite the efforts of our female teacher and my mother to represent and to shed light on Hill's perspective. I've thought back to this trial on various occasions when I've seen women discredited. It's disheartening how awareness does not always breed true progress. I look forward to the film of this incident to be reminded how far we have and haven't come. One funny anecdote, somewhat related. In the summer of 2000, I was working as an intern in Washington, D.C. and living on Capitol Hill. I was a pretty innocent college student. Despite my ultra-fair complexion, I was determined to acquire something of a tan and devoted myself to some regular sunbathing, which I did on the nicest patch of grass within walking distance from my apartment, one of the Supreme Court lawns. It was without a doubt the most popular sunbathing destination on the hill and usually liberally sprinkled with girls in swimsuits. After I had been doing this routine for many weekends in a row, I was approached by a police officer who patrolled the area. He was non-creepy, but his talking to me in a swimsuit made me very aware of my non-dressedness. He warned me about walking home from the metro stop alone at night as there had been some assaults recently on the area on women walking alone. Then he asked me if I liked the lawn. He then told me it was the nicest lawn on the hill because it was the pet project of Judge Clarence Thomas, who said he was a, quote, great horticulturalist. Then he pointed out Judge Thomas's window in the building directly above us. See, 
That's his window right up there. He likes to have the nicest view. I actually don't think the cop was thinking what I was thinking at all. Yeah, sure, horticulturalist, which I found pretty hilarious even at 21. Anyway, it's a random memory. Well, let's just say that even at 21, I chose not to return to the lawn. I wonder if anyone else who listens has funny stories like that. Well, thanks, Kate. And I've got a letter here from Jill uh, about our ghosting episode from a while back. Subject line, ghosting since 1851. She writes, hello, ladies. Hot on the heels of your ghosting podcast, I recently started reading Mrs. Beaton's Household Management, a compilation of etiquette articles published as a single volume in 1861 in England. Imagine my surprise when I read this gem. When any of the carriages of the party guests are announced or the time for their departure arrived, they should make a slight intimation to the hostess without, however, exciting any observation that they're about to depart. If this cannot be done, however, without creating too much bustle, it will be better for the visitors to retire quietly without taking their leave. Ghosting in relationships may be new, but people have been advised to duck out on parties for nearly two centuries. Thank you so much for sending us that gem, Jill. And listeners, now we want to hear from you. Momstuff at HowStuffWorks.com is our email address. And for links to all of our social media, as well as all of our blogs, videos, and podcasts with our sources, so you can learn more about colorism, head on over to StuffMomNeverToldYou.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. 